0: Of all creation. All right. And now let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. And we're going to be in John chapter 15, verses 5 to 11. John chapter 15, 5 to 11. And please stand with me as we read God's word. John fifteen five to 11, beginning at verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Jason, good to see you, everybody. Uh, Let's jump right into prayer. This morning. I'm just going to set this thing up right. Let's jump right into prayer this morning. Lord, you've said in your word that your word is like seed that is thrown on various different soils. And what I pray this morning as the word gets thrown through my voice. I pray that it would be your word. I pray that you would center the things that I say on your word and that we together would collectively see in your word, new things, not necessarily from what I'm saying, but from what we see by your Holy spirit. But as your word goes forth, what is true in you would land on good soil this morning. And whether it's someone listening here in person, whether it's someone Just next door, outside, whether it's someone who's listening on the live stream or later on on YouTube, God, that that you would do a preparation in our hearts this morning, that we would be the good soil, whereas your word goes in, it sprouts something. Something comes to life inside of us and it grows and grows and grows and fruit develops. God, I pray that you would use your word, your powerful word to that end. I pray, God, that we would see you with eyes that are fully open. So help, Lord, help me as I try to apply your word now to our lives. Holy Spirit, come and help us now as we try to listen, all of us, as we try to listen to what your word is saying to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Just before I got up here, as Jason was talking, I just developed this tickle in my throat and I started coughing horribly. So I've got my water here. I'm going to pause from time to time to drink some just because I'm afraid I'm going to have a coughing attack in front of all of you here. So uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, We are continuing our study. If you have not been with us of the I am statements of Jesus, in fact, this is one of the last sermons we're going to do. We have a couple of more after this, but it's one of the last ones. We've spent all school year, starting in December, working on the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. So if you're not familiar, Jesus makes all of these statements about himself. And if we want to know who Jesus is, one of the great things that we do is we go to the source. We go to the who, what does Jesus say about himself? Well, what we find is that there are these seven statements that Jesus says where he says I am and then he he follows up and sometimes it's a metaphor right like today I am the vine You are the branches and we get a metaphor and we're supposed to think deeply and carefully about what is the picture that he's creating when he says, I am the vine. And so we're as we've been doing with the others, we're going to be spending a few weeks on each of these. And so we will have even a few more weeks after this on I am the vine. And I want to explain a little bit about where we're going today and what we're doing. So before that, let me remind you of the metaphor. Okay. And this is, if you were here last week, you got this, but let me remind you now what the metaphor is that Jesus is saying when he says, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. You are the branches. Okay. Jesus is, we get from John 15 verse one. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Okay, And now a vine is similar, if you want to think about it, to a trunk of a tree. That's where the nutrients go first, and then the branches are the things that are coming off of the trunk, and the nutrients eventually flow into the branches, or you hope that they flow into the branches. Now, he says that God the Father, and again, I'm looking at verse 1 here, God the Father is the caretaker. He calls him, in the ESV, he calls him the vine dresser, which is a fancy word for just someone who takes care of the vine and we are the branches of that vine now now here's what's important to this metaphor there are two kinds of branches there are those who bear fruit and there are those who do not and that's kind of the main crux of this of this metaphor here now here's what happens the caretaker the father, god the father comes looking for fruit on the branches If he finds fruit on a branch, he prunes it. That's what Jesus tells us. If he doesn't, he cuts it off. And it tells us later that he throws it into the fire. So this is serious. This is one of those life and death, heaven and hell metaphors. It's not a casual statement by Jesus. It's not something for us to take casually. This is there are deep things being discussed here, eternal things that are being discussed here. But here's what Jesus promises us. Any branch who is truly in Jesus bears fruit. Every single branch who is truly in Jesus bears fruit. So that's what we really covered last week. That was kind of the basic idea of the metaphor and the basic picture of what was going on. And this week now, we're going to look at verses 5 through 11, where he's going to repeat some of these things, but he's going to go deeper. And I think he's going to give us now some motivations. He's going to help us now with some whys. He's going to put some whys behind the statement. Abide in me. Because that's the main statement of this whole thing. Abide in me, Jesus says. Live in me. Remain in me. Stay put in me. Don't leave me. That's the idea that's being discussed here. And now what I'm seeing in verses 5 through 11 are reasons for us to abide in Jesus. Why, Jesus? Why should I abide in you? Okay, so in our text this morning, we're going to see a repeat of the command to abide. Okay, that that happened last week. We're going to see it again. And then surrounding that command, before and after that command, are six reasons why we should do so. And then what we're going to cover next week is one explanation as to what it actually means to abide, which we'll get next week. So, We're going to be a little bit all over the place this morning in our text. And I I just want to say that to you guys. If you really like linear things, if you like things to go from the beginning and go to the end, you may have a hard time this morning. I'm just telling you. Because because I want you to see the command first, and then I want you to see the reasons. And we're going to have to jump a little bit around in order to see that. So today begins part one of a two-part series because there's no way we are going to cover six reasons in depth. We're going to cover three of them today, and then we're going to cover three of them, Lord willing, next week. Okay, so that's where we're going today. So let's get the main point, and then we'll jump in. So if you are taking notes, I'd like to be able to give the main point right at the beginning of the sermon so you know where this is going. Here, here's, the, here's the main point. There's a lot of explanation required, but here it is. Jesus' love is the only escape from barren judgment. Okay, Jesus' love is the only escape from barren judgment. There's a reason for each of those words. We will get into that in just a second here. Let's look at our text. I'd like you to start. Jason read verses 5 through 11. I would like you to look with me at verse 9. Let's start at verse 9 this morning, and we'll come back to verse 5. Here is what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse nine. He says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Notice the command there. Do you see it right there at the end of the verse? Abide in my love. This is the only command we have in our entire section. Everything else, as I've argued already, is a reason for that command. It's a reason to obey that command. Why should I obey that command? Jesus says, let me give you reasons. And he gives reasons before, and he gives reasons after this command. But verse nine is where the command actually comes in. So if you want to know, well, what is it that I'm supposed to do in this passage? What are you calling me to do, God? Verse nine is abide in my love. Now, notice we've already had this word abide, right? We've already seen it. If you were here with us last week, we had it last week, but he changes it a little bit. Do you notice that? Abide in me is what he says earlier. And now he says in verse nine, abide in my love. Is he saying something different? Is it different to abide in me than to abide in my love? Are those two different commands or is that the same command? I don't think those are two different commands. But I think here he's saying something more. I think he's saying something more than simply to abide in me. I think he's taking it further. He's saying now, abide in my love. Why is that important for us to know that we are to actually abide in Jesus' love rather than to simply abide in him? What's going on here? Well, look at the whole verse. Do you see how it flows, all verse nine, how it flows all together? Jesus is talking about this this chain of love, which flows from the father, through the son, and then ultimately to us. Do you see it? Jesus, Let me go backwards. Jesus has love for you if you abide in him. He has love for you. Where does that love come from? It comes ultimately from the father. And so in the same way, the love of the father that he has for, for his son, Jesus says, I have that love for you. Now abide in that love. It's an invitation to abide in the love that already exists, that's already present at the moment when you go to abide in it. There's a motivation here. There's a reason. There's something underneath, not just a command, not just to abide in me because I said so. There's a abide in my love and my love is already there for you. And by the way, it's a Trinitarian love that existed, has always existed for all time that the father has had for the son. And he says, that's the love that I have for you. Now, now, come on, abide in it, live in it, remain in it. If you're a Christian this morning, you have to know this, that love was there for you before you ever decided to follow Jesus. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, that love preceded your decision to follow Jesus. That's why he says, Abide in my love. The love was there the first moment you started abiding, it was there before the first moment you started abiding. So here's point one if you're taking notes, and here's the first reason abide in Jesus' love because he loved you first. That's a reason, that's a motivation. That's something that if that love is already there for me, why would I not want to want to step into that love and live and remain in a love that has already existed for me? Now, here's something we ought to understand. Notice the command is not saying, Jesus is not saying here, abide in me so that I love you. Do you see the difference there? Sometimes we read things like that, weird things like that into the Bible. That's not there. It's abide in the love I already have for you. Your decision to follow Jesus doesn't, it's not like Jesus is sitting there going, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to see. If you show some interest in me, then maybe I'll show some interest in you. You know, kind of like a dating relationship, like a high school thing where it's like you're sitting there like I'm going to I'm going to wait. I don't know. I'm not sure if how this person feels. I got to wait for a sign from them before I show any affection for them. That's not our God. Jesus says, I have loved you. My love preceded your love. He acted first in this situation. It is this, abide in my love, which was already there for you before you ever decided to abide. Jesus doesn't wait around. He doesn't look to see whether you're going to love him and then decide to love you. You're, In fact, here's the truth, Christian. His love initiated your love for him. The reason you love him is because he loved you. I want you guys to see this. If you love Jesus this morning, it is because he loved you. Now, there's, there's some objections that come at this point. There's some people, if you, some of you guys may be thinking these, your, your brains are spinning and you're thinking, okay, wait, 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 wait. You're talking about a particular love that Jesus has for people who, who are Christians, who have put their trust in him, but doesn't Jesus love everybody? Doesn't he love everybody? What, I don't understand. And at this point, they would say, well, he loves the whole world, does he not? And as we'll get to just in a second, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But I want to be very, very clear and maybe a little provocative this morning when I say this love. No, he does not love the whole world with this love. Now, some of you go, whoa, 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 you lost me. Is there a love that Jesus loves those who are his with? That is not true of somebody who rejects him. The answer is yes, there is a love that he loves those who are his with. We got to get some Bible behind that, don't we? I better not just make a statement like that. We got to get some Bible behind that. Does he love everyone with a covenantal, these are some Bible words here, initiating heart changing kind of love? Does he love everyone that way? No, no. Here's my claim that there's a kind of love that God has only for those who are his people. Can we prove that? Is that in scripture? Let's look at first John chapter 2, verse 15. I'll put it on the board behind behind me. Let's just see one, one or two verses here to back up this claim. John says in this passage, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now look at the if. If anyone loves the world, what's true of that person? The love of the Father is not in him. Whoa! There are people where the love of the father is not, that's not in them. In other words, I think that means like it's not towards them. That's what I'm arguing. If they love the world, in other words, that's a settled conviction to say no to God and yes to the things of the world over the whole of one's life. And and at that point you would say, nope, the love of the father is not in that person. Whoa. What about this? Revelation chapter three, verse 19. Here's Jesus, the world, he sent his son so that God stands ready to receive all who will come to him so that I can stand up here, friends, and preach the gospel to everyone, including everybody who's listening on, on the camera right now and say, you can come because the way has been made open because God sent his son who tore the veil between us and God. He took away the separation so you can come. That's love. That's a loving thing to do to take away the things that would hinder us from coming. And so do you know what's left that hinders us? If you don't know Jesus, do you know what's left your own rebellious heart, that's what's left. That's what keeps you. There's nothing keeping you from coming to God right now, from repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus, except a heart which says, no, that's it. And it was loving for him to clear the way because I'll tell you this, if if Jesus hadn't died, it wouldn't matter what your heart position was. There was no way to deal with your sin and my sin. But God said, I'm going to love the world. I'm going to send my son. And now the way stands open and preachers are ready to preach. And Christians are ready to go out on the mission that God has called us to, to proclaim this gospel that you can be saved. And that's love. But it's not the same kind of love. I've said it before from this pulpit. I'm called as a Christian to love every person in the world. And I'm called as a Christian, half of those people are women. And I'm called as a man, as a Christian to love every woman in the world. And that is not even comparable to what I am called to love in my wife. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference in me loving my wife and loving every woman in the world. God has a love for us that is akin to marriage. He has a love for us that is covenantal. It is that, and I'm talking to Christians here. And when you put your trust in Jesus, the love that God has for you is a marriage kind of love. I hope that isn't soiled by the way marriage has been often ruined in this world. I hope you know what, what, what marriage was intended to be. It's that kind of love. It's a covenant. And it's different from God saying, I love all people. Amen. So Jesus invites us to this. He says, abide in my covenantal heart-changing love. Come. And I'm here as a preacher saying, the way is open to everybody. Come. Come. And when you come, if you come, you know what he says to you? I've loved you from the foundation of the world with a heart changing kind of love. So it's a motivation. And I hope you're hearing me. And if you don't know Jesus, I hope you're hearing me this morning as the call is open. The call to come is wide open. <sighs> He loves us. He loves us. And I don't mean this sort of regular kind of love. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows you like a husband and a wife would know one another. The depths of each other, he knows you. Come to that. But he initiated it. He started it. Okay, we got the command in the section abide in my love, right? We saw that in verse nine. We've seen one of the reasons now to abide because I first loved you. That's the reason. We've seen the command, we've seen the reason. Now I want to go to the first verse in our section, and I want to see now a second reason to abide. Let's look at verse five. Let's look at, we got the command. Now let's look at a reason now, another reason to abide. He starts out with, with the same metaphor that he gave from before. I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the second reason. Abide in Jesus's love or abide in Jesus because he is the only way to a changed life. He is the only way to a changed life. Remember what bearing fruit means. Do you remember that? Remember, remember the definition we got last week? Bearing fruit or fruit means the outward visible effect of a changed heart. You can see it in another person. You can see fruit. You may not see the depths of somebody's heart. I may not be able to tell, to, to, to say, to, to look at somebody out here and, and get the deep inward most, um, uh, you know, reasons for everything that they do, but I can see fruit. I can see the effect of what's coming out of the heart. And we can see that both good and bad. So we we often say things like, man, I I want, I want to change. I want, I want, I want to be different in my life. I want something different. For instance, we're getting sold to this idea in, in marketing these days, this idea of change, life change. I find it interesting today. There are life coaches now. Do you guys know this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have one. I don't know. But life coaches are kind of a new thing. Life coaches are people, that's their job to sort of help you with your habits, help you with who you are, You know, your psychology, your motivation. You're paying somebody to say, change my life. My life isn't good. There's something wrong. There's something I want to add to it. I'm going to pay this person to say, you know, help me with change, right? And then everything in marketing today, everything, every, every item, every widget that a company wants to sell you today is life changing. You notice that? That's the way they market it. Diets are going to change your life if you just do this diet. It will change. Your life, every product on the market is going to change your life or bring happiness where you don't have it or, you know, whatever. I don't care if it's Coca-Cola. I don't care if it's a car, whatever it is. It's saying I will change your life if you buy me. Now, why does that work? That's what I want to ask. Why does that work if it isn't for the fact that we deep down inside are seeking change. And I don't mean like the kind that comes from a new car. I actually think that there's something deeper in us that is feeling a need for change. You might not be able to clarify exactly what it is. You might not be able to know, you know, where is this coming from? What area in my life was going on? But there's, but human beings know there's something wrong. And it sickens me that the products come in and say, well, I have the answer. The life coach comes in and says, I have the answer. The car company says, well, if you just buy this car and that works for about two weeks, you feel really good <laughs> for about two weeks. And then somebody dings your car and you just go, ah, oh, you know. just." But here's what Jesus says. He says, abide in me. And change is going to happen in your life. Now, what do I mean by that change? You're going to bear fruit. That's what he says. You're going to bear fruit. The Bible is boldly telling us that there's a particular change we are looking for. We are broken in one particular way. And that leads to all the other brokenness around us. Okay, So it's not wrong to seek out remedies. It's not wrong to say, I need to change some of my habits. The problem is you're surface level at that point. You're not dealing with the most fundamental brokenness that you feel that actually leads to all other brokenness in your life. Our connection to God is broken as human beings. This is our starting place. This is where we begin as human beings. We begin with a broken relationship to God. In fact, in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve are in the garden and they sin against God in the garden. That first sin severed the relationship between human beings and God. All of their children after them would live with the repercussions of that one first sin that took place when they disobeyed God and ate the fruit that God said, don't eat. And there was a brokenness that has existed from that point forward. Now, when they sinned, God did something really interesting. And if you read Genesis for the first time, it usually leaves you scratching your head because you go, what is the point of this? And what he does is he says to Adam at one point after the sin takes place, Adam, because you did this, I'm going to curse the ground. And you're like, Okay, that doesn't seem to follow. If he did something wrong, do something wrong, do something bad to Adam or something, punish Adam or something. What's what's the point of cursing the ground? What's the point of making it so that the ground now no longer yields sort of its, its crop and product and fruit the way it did before? What's the point of that? And the point of that, as I understand it, and as I look, read through the rest of the Bible... The point of that is that God is going to say, just like that ground doesn't produce fruit, your heart doesn't produce fruit. The ground is like you, Adam, Eve. You see that ground? You see how it's just barren and dry? That's you apart from me. It's a picture. It's a metaphor that God gave to Adam and Eve, that from that point forward, all of humanity would see the barrenness of the ground and would say, wow, there's, I wonder why it's barren. And they would go seek it out and find that it's because their hearts are barren. You cut off humans from the life giving nutrients of God and they are barren like the ground. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the restoration of that original connection to God. The being cut off from sin so that there's no nutrients flowing into your heart is like the ground being barren until you again have those nutrients flow into you that Jesus says, I'm the vine that the nutrients flow through. And when you are connected to the vine in that way, you reverse what happened with Adam and Eve you reverse it in your own life the soil of your life if you will if you want to say it this way the soil of your life is now fertile and producing fruit only because of your connection to god through jesus christ that's what jesus is telling us that's what he means by saying i am the vine Your deep sense that something is wrong and that you need change is satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone can restore the dry desert-like soul that has been cut off from the nutrients of God's love. You need it if you are not putting your trust in Christ this morning. That's what you need more than anything else. You don't need a new car. You don't need more money. Trust me, you do not need those things. What you need is to be is to be grafted back into well, if you be put back in to the life-giving nutrients of the vine where that those nutrients are flowing. Because you're barren and dry and you're a wasteland, and you, you, you can't, it's like pouring, you know, it's like taking an avion bottle and just pouring it out on the desert. It does nothing. Jesus says, I am the one who's gonna restore and transform all of you from the inside out. Now, there's also consequences. If we remain barren and dry for the whole of our lives, there are consequences. And let's look at them now. John 15:6. the next verse. Here's our third motivation. Here's our third reason. John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And here's point number three, abide in Jesus because the alternative is hell. I don't know how to lighten that. I don't know how to say that in any way other than the simplicity with which it is said here. The metaphor is obvious, I think, to all of us. If you're a branch that does not produce fruit, if that is the settled place of your life, you are cut off and thrown into the fire. And Jesus himself is telling us this. We get uncomfortable talking about hell, don't we? I understand why. It makes us uncomfortable. It, it, It really... The fact that a loving God would send people there is confusing to a lot of us, isn't it? There's a lot of questions people have. And and my goal this morning is not to try to answer all those objections and questions. My goal is to try to see what the text is clearly saying. Because we're confronted with the fact that Jesus talked a lot about hell. He actually talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. Did you know that? Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And these ideas can be uncomfortable, but we never want to run or hide from something in the Bible. If you know what's good for you as a human being, you know that you don't know enough to reject this. That's my claim. If you know what is good for you, you know that you and I don't know, don't see everything perfectly. We're not the arbiters of truth. We're not the ones where we can sit there and stand over the Bible and say, I don't like that. That's wrong. Rather, we sit under the Bible and we say, whatever it is that your word by divine revelation is coming to me, that's what I want to receive and hold on to, even if it hurts to think about it. I want to get my mind oriented onto, the, onto what your Bible is saying. And here, Jesus, like he does many other places, speaks very openly about hell. And I want to go a little bit, bit deeper now to talk about what does it mean then? What is he talking about when he says that there are certain branches that because they don't produce fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire? What's the metaphor pointing to? In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, this is the very end of the Bible, by the way. Revelation 20 is two chapters before the end of the Bible. And we see in Revelation chapter 20, the final judgment that's going to take place for all humanity. The Bible actually tells us what's going to happen in this moment. And there's a significant amount of text here, but let us it's good for us to read it, okay? So I'm gonna read it, follow along, focus along as we see what this says now about this final judgment. Starting with verse 11, then I saw, Now that's heavy. And there's also a lot of text there. So let's just notice a couple of things in this passage. Notice about the books. Did you, did you, did you read about, do you you consider the books? Verse 12 talks about there were books that were opened. What are these books? Well, it tells us that the books are the deeds of people. Your life is being written down in what revelation would call a book. Everything you've done, all that you are, every secret moment, everything that you have done, which no one else has seen, everything about you, the innermost thoughts of your heart have been written down in books. And it says that the dead were there and the books were opened and they were judged according to the deeds that were in the books. And how many escape that judgment? Do you, do you recall from the text how many get out of that judgment based upon their deeds and actually are judged righteous based upon the deeds written in their books? Anybody notice that? No one. Every single person who is judged by their deeds will fail in the judgment. That's what the text says. But there was another book, wasn't there? The book of life, which elsewhere in the book of Revelation, it is called the Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Anybody know? Good, good Sunday school answer. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the Lamb. Jesus is the one who writes down those listed in the Lamb's book of life. Now, here's what happens to them. If you're in the Lamb's book of life, you're not judged according to the books of your deeds. Do you notice that? Did you see that there in Revelation? It's there, friends. If your name's in the Lamb's book of life, you're not judged by the books. Why? Well, we have to read the rest of the Bible to know the answer to that question. The answer to that question is that Jesus took your deeds. He took all that. He was the one judged with your deeds that would have been written in that book. He already took care of that judgment. And what did he give you? His perfect life so that you're not judged according to your life anymore. You're you're judged according to his life, his righteous and perfect life of which the father says, that's my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's you if you're a Christian. But do you see that in the judgment, the judgment is actually about fruit bearing. What are your deeds? The judgment is based upon deeds. Now, now here's the thing that, we, that Revelation doesn't tell us that the rest of the Bible does. It goes a little bit further as we gather from the gospels and the rest of the Bible. Not only, not only are you judged based upon Jesus's righteous judgment, but here's what the rest of the Bible tells us. You, Christian, actually begin to produce righteousness, through the Holy Spirit living inside of you. In other words, you begin to change in your actual life. Your real life that I can see and that others can see looks different because you put your trust in Jesus. And I would argue that it is upon that basis, going back to John 15, when when the vine dresser comes, when God the Father comes to your life to look for fruit, it's actually that which has been produced in you by the Holy Spirit that he's looking for. So if you are in Christ, you're written in the book of life. But if you are in Christ, your life will also produce fruit in addition to being made righteous by his perfect righteousness. It just will happen, doesn't it? It, it, it Doesn't Jesus say here in John 15, if you abide in me, you will produce fruit. And so the judgment day for those who are outside of Christ is based upon, well, is is in accordance with, the Bible says, their deeds. But guess what? Spirit-filled Christian? Judgment day is also in some ways in accordance with your deeds, the kinds of deeds that have been done by the power of the Holy spirit as your life has begun to change. Did I say that they're based upon that as if God is looking back for works as if he's looking around at you for works? No, but when you claim to trust Jesus, your life looks different. And I believe that that claim will be tested by your works in the sense that the Holy spirit works that you are producing now will produce the kinds of things where you say, yep, that person's in Jesus. That person's in Jesus. We can see it. We can see the way that their life has been different. But the alternative here, the alternative is for those who do not produce fruit, their life doesn't look different. It doesn't matter what they claim It matters what has happened in their life, the fruit that is produced out of their life because they've allowed Jesus in to to those nutrients in to be able to produce the fruit. And if if it's not there, it doesn't matter what they're saying. Matthew chapter seven, there are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. What kind of fruit was that? What kind of fruit actually came out of their life? What kind of fruit was actually happening? What we would call bad fruit, wickedness. So salvation is based upon grace. And it is based upon the completed work of Jesus on the cross. But that completed work of Jesus on the cross actually does something to you it changes you, it changes your heart. And when we, whether us as human beings living around you or whether it's God in all of eternity judging, when he sees your claim to follow Jesus, it also follows that there will be fruit coming off of your limbs. Now, for some of you and for some in the Bible, it, it, it'll, it'll be, I think of the, the thief on the cross. And I think of the fact that that guy, came to Jesus in the absolute last moments of his life. And yet there was in his life, this one, if you want to call it piece of fruit. And here's the fruit, Jesus, will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? That's fruit. That's fruit. That heart To say that is an outward manifestation of something that had happened inside of that guy's changed heart while he was hanging on a cross next to Jesus. His heart was radically changed so that he utters a couple of words, one sentence, and it's like, there it is. That's it. That's the outward expression of a life which is abiding in the love of Christ. And it was at the last moment of his life. And there will be some like that. And there will be others that have lived walking with Jesus, loving Jesus and living with him for many, many, many years. And their branches, if you will, will be just full of fruit. Praise God for that. There's no distinction between the two. It's just produce fruit. Is it there or is it not? And friends, if you put your trust in Jesus, your life is gonna look different. It just is, it just is. So let's conclude by saying this, we're gonna look at three more next week. Today, we looked at three reasons to abide in Jesus. The first being that it's the love of Jesus, which was there for you first. The second being that that's actually the way fruit happens, change happens in your life by abiding in Jesus, not by going after surface area, surface level things. It's by abiding in him. And number three, the alternative is hell. We We don't want to go there. We don't want to be cut off forever from God in his love. So abide in Christ, three reasons three three reasons to motivate you to move toward Jesus this morning and let those reasons overcome your desire to go after other worldly gods seek out Jesus let go of the sin that you are holding on to seek him out because that that is how change happens and that is how you abide in his love and that is how we stand in the judgment one day and hear well done good and faithful servant enter into my kingdom let's pray Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would open up our hearts, whether we are Christians or whether we've never put our trust in you, God, I pray we would see you clearly. I pray we would set aside the things we've been dabbling in, the the ways in which we've just been seeking after other happinesses and, and joys in our life that are not of you. Lord, let us set them aside and repent of those things and come back to the love that has been waiting for us from the foundation of the world. That we would see the change that happens the joy that fills up in our hearts as we are now attached to the vine that we've been disattached as humans since adam and god we want to stand in you one day without fear of judgment we want to as hebrews says enter boldly into the throne knowing that there is no judgment remaining for us we want those things god And I pray you would call us again to the simple command, as hard as it is to live, the simple command of abiding in your love. Teach us to do that, Lord. And as we talk more next week about what that looks like, I pray God, you'd, you would just be convicting us throughout the week of ways we can be abiding more in your love. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.